Well, thank you, Justin and Jonathan. I'm just so grateful for being led the way you've led us and for this congregation. Uh, I know you're singing to God, but you're singing to me this morning. Um, couldn't help but think of all the things going on in our lives as we were singing those words together this morning, starting with, all I am is yours. We typically think of our talents, our money, our time, things we're tempted to keep for ourselves instead of offering to the Lord. But I was thinking, wow, all I am is yours, even the garbage in my life and the hard things in our lives. I was thinking of family strife and sickness and death and so many of the difficult things we're going through as a congregation and have gone through for quite a while. And I'm just so grateful that it's not just our gifts and talents that we offer to him, but it's the things that we would never choose to have part of our lives that he takes as well and redeems and uses in those ways. And, and then I was just thinking about his faithfulness. And we all know his faithfulness doesn't mean the absence of suffering, the absence of difficulty. We know he's faithful in all of those things, and we affirm that faithfulness. And then you deserve it all. I was thinking, thinking of the fact that he deserves all we are and all we have, and the reason we're reconciled to him is because he took what he didn't deserve. He didn't deserve punishment. He, he didn't deserve suffering and death and rejection. But he took that because I did and you did. And I'm so, so grateful for that. Well, I'm looking at some of you. I officiated some of your weddings. I happily attended many of your weddings. I have been, I lost count a long time ago how many weddings I've been to. Work with college students most of my adult life and you end up going to a lot of weddings that way and officiating a whole lot of them as well. And I'm so grateful for that. And what I'm about to say is almost entirely an exception to weddings I've been part of and attended with folks from here at Grace. But I've been at weddings where the wife was drunk before the wedding. Um, I've been to weddings where um, it, it was not very honoring to God and where the, the groom knelt during the wedding and it said, help me on the bottom of his shoes that his, his wedding party put there, all kinds of things. Yeah, so one of the things that surprised me most about wedding receptions outside of grace weddings uh, is how, how bad the best man speeches tend to be. Here's your one opportunity, brah, to honor your friend and his wife and exalt, if you're a Christian, the God who invented weddings, and so often it's all about the best man, how tight he and the groom are, how all these great experiences they had, how important he is to, the, to them, giving advice. It's all about the, the best man so, so often, and I so often want to stand up with a big hook and say, dude, it's not about you right now. Stop talking about yourself and how important you are to the couple. And then it, it'll just be thoughtless and rambling. And there's a great need for better best man speeches. And if I'm part of a wedding, I will often give advice to the groom to say, hey, tell your best man to put some time and thought and prayer into what he... This is his, his seven minutes to launch you well. So 
We have before us this morning the best, best man speech you'll ever hear. (laughs) It's as good as it gets. It's in Luke chapter 3. It's John the Baptist, and he's the best man. The Bible tells us he's the best. He's the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. He's not the groom. And he does an amazing job of not talking about himself, but completely shifting the focus to the groom and not himself. This is the best, best man speech you'll ever hear. And it's in Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Let's read together. Help us, Lord. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Five points this morning. One. Jesus is the Savior. Two, Jesus is supreme. Three, Jesus is the judge. Four, Jesus is the uniter and the divider. And five, Jesus' followers will be persecuted. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the uniter and divider, and Jesus' followers will be persecuted. Point one, Jesus is the Savior. Now, we start our passage by talking about expectations. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, whether he might be the anointed one, the Messiah, the one who was bringing the kingdom of God promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and we followed in their lineage in that rebellion and God promised even in the midst of judging them that he would bring a seed of the woman who would come and crush the head of the serpent and usher into the kingdom of God, into creation, the kingdom of God and bring the salvation we desperately need. It's no wonder they were wondering if John the Baptist was the Messiah. There had been 400 years of prophetic silence, and now the word of the Lord, 
has come through John. That's how chapter 3 starts. Clearly, the Word of God is framing this whole thing, and the Spirit of God is taking that Word and through John using it powerfully. This is the John who, in his mother's womb, was spiritually aware that the Messiah had walked into the room in the womb of his mother, Mary, and leapt in Elizabeth's womb. This man is led by the Spirit, the Spirit's on him, and the Word of God is what's being energized and actualized through him, and John is being used by God as the Word and Spirit come together in this way. And he's preaching the Word of God in a way people hadn't heard in centuries. So it's no wonder they're saying, he must be the one. John must be the Messiah that we've been waiting for for millennia. He's here. And John wants to make sure and does everything he possibly can to make sure that they know he's not the Savior. There are two things going on here. They were aware of their desperate need for Mashiach, for the Christos, the anointed one, the one upon whom the Spirit had come to enable him to fulfill the prophetic, priestly, and kingly offices that had come before and now that he perfectly fulfills. And they need to know, is he the one? And he wants them to know, no, I'm preparing. He's not denying that he is the great Old Testament prophet, even the greatest Old Testament prophet. They knew their need. That's the first thing I want us to be aware of. You're not an expectation. You're not an anticipation. You're not desperately asking the question, is this the Savior we need? If you don't know, you need a Savior. I mean, what do we sing at Christmas? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And when he appeared, he came in the person of Christ, but we live in this amazing age between that first and second coming, so we can understand that longing still, even though we rejoice in the fact that he came, and he's coming again now. And we can still sing with the same meaning, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Do you know you need to be ransomed, bought back from the kingdom of darkness, bought back from slavery to sin that you live in? Do you know your desperate need for forgiveness? See, I have two big concerns in this. Do you, do you have eager expectation? Do you have a deep realization of and desire for forgiveness, for reconciliation to God. If you don't know your need, Jesus will mean nothing to you except maybe a smart guy who taught morals a long time ago. He's the savior of the world. As we'll see, he's the creator of the world. Do you know your need this morning? I've been praying, and I'm praying as I'm preaching, and I hope you're praying too, that you and others here this morning will be aware of your desperate need. And if you were aware of your need a long time ago when you trusted Jesus, I pray you'll have a renewed, a rekindled sense of your desperate need for forgiveness. Because like that woman Justin reminded us of, at Jesus' feet, giving everything she had because she knew she had been forgiven much. If we forget how forgiven we are, we won't be gospel people. We won't really get the gospel and live out the gospel. Do you know how needy you are before God? Christian and needy are two words that should just so naturally go together in our minds. You know, you, you deserve it all. We we sang, my hands are empty, but they're yours. 
What do we put on the altar we were singing? Our broken lives. You know, you can assume he'll want, want nothing to do with a broken life, but those are the only kind he heals. Those are the only kind he redeems because that's all we've got is sin and brokenness that we bring to him. Do you know how needy you are? And here's my second concern. Maybe you know how needy you are, but you're not convinced Jesus really is the Savior. He is. That's the first point. He's the Savior of the world. Maybe you're aware of your need, but you're not convinced he can really meet that need. He can. He is the one we've been waiting for. That who came and is coming again. He is the Savior of the world. So many ways you can wait, right? And there were, in the first century, God's people were waiting in all different kinds of ways, right? The Sadducees, they kind of liked the Roman oppression they were living under because they started to benefit from it as religious leaders and they, they would get in cahoots with, with the Romans and the Pharisees were, no, they wouldn't go there, but, but they still were seeking their importance and their prestige through religious observance, sometimes in, in tension with Rome. And then you had the zealots who said, all right, we're going to take matters into our own hands. And we're going we're to take daggers and stab Roman soldiers any chance we get. And the, the, Essenes said, the Essenes said, we're out of here. We're going to the wilderness. We're just detaching completely. Still all those sorts of approaches are in play in the church, right? But then you had actually the majority of the people in the church, like in the, among the people of God, who, who were like Anna and Simeon that we heard about just a few weeks ago, the Amharets, the people of the land, the quiet ones, who weren't passive. They weren't inactive. They weren't apathetic. But they knew they couldn't fix the problems with their own strategies and solutions. They knew they desperately needed God to do that for them. They knew they couldn't solve their problems on their own with their own ingenuity and systems and all we need is a better government or better parenting or better education or better, better politicians or some sort of solution. They know they knew the big problems of life could only be solved by Emmanuel, God with us. And so they waited and they longed. It didn't mean they were passive. They were working to live righteous lives and make a difference for good and be salt and light but mainly they were waiting for God's saving provision, knowing they couldn't solve the problems themselves. And I love this image of who we are to be as God's people, as the people of the land, the, the quiet ones, waiting, working, striving to wait patiently and well. And Jesus is that Savior we desperately needed. Second, he's supreme. You know, there's some words, like, I, f I feel like we need to come up with different words that mean the same thing, especially when I moved to Southern California. Awesome means absolutely nothing, right? It's completely lost its ability to actually be awesome, right? Because everything's awesome. It's, it's in the country, but Southern California, like, awesome. Everything's awesome. Like, this is an awesome smoothie. All right. It fills you with awe. All right, great. Um, I enjoy a good smoothie myself, but please. I, so... Another one of those words is supreme. Here's, here's, as I was trying to think about this word supreme, the supremacy of Christ, I thought, oh, it's horrible. Because I said, what's the first thing I think of when I think of supreme? It's, it's the pizza with the most ingredients. 
it really bummed me out that that's what I thought of. It's like, yeah, you got the meat lover's pizza, the veggie pizza, you get lots of ingredients, you can pick your own ingredients, but if you want as many ingredients as we put on a pizza, order the supreme. Or size, you know, it's like small, medium, large, extra large, and then supreme. And I think, no, it cannot be pizza we think of when we think of supreme. It's ultimate, preeminent, as good as it gets. And that's what John's saying here, isn't he? He's saying, oh no, I'm not supreme. Jesus is supreme. In the ninth second thing I thought it was, was the Supremes, right? The band, the group, all right? They were good, but supreme, nothing ever been better? That, that's what we have here. He says, he's so much in a different realm than I am that even though he's the greatest prophet in all the Old Testament prophets, he says the difference between him and me is so radical that I'm not even fit to do the lowliest servant action for him. Do you know in rabbinic teaching, (laughs) slaves would undo someone's sandals after coming in from the muck and walking by the open sewers in the streets at the time. And and, and only non-Hebrew slaves, even a slave in in the Hebrew culture (laughs) wouldn't do that. And John says, I don't even get to do that for him. It's amazing. We come to Jesus with our agenda, what he better be like and what we want him to be like, and we make him into that. And the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets says, I, I can't even untie a sin. I'm not even fit for that. How supreme is Jesus to you? For so many, even Christians I talk to, he's like this self-help coach, you know? He's your life counselor. No, he's king of kings and lord of lords. He's the creator. Do you realize who Jesus is? I absolutely love Muhammad Ali. I just love people who get after it. And he got after it in all kinds of ways. Um, He was a fascinating cultural figure. I was a kid when he was in his prime, you know. And uh, when he said... I am the greatest. You, you knew he wasn't just talking about boxing. You know, he, 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 was, he really seemed to think that he was the greatest. He said, I'm too pretty. You can't hit me. I'm too pretty. I mean, he would, he would just exalt himself in so many ways. He was a master showman and even more a master businessman. He knew exactly what he needed to do to get people to hate him. So they paid lots of money to see him get beat up, but then he ended up beating everybody else up. It was great. You know, he fooled everybody. <laughs> but he wasn't the greatest. Jesus is the greatest. He's supreme. The supremacy of Christ is one of the most precious thoughts. I I, I would love for us to to just talk about his supremacy. That no one's close. It's not like Jesus, LeBron, your favorite politician, your favorite political pundit. No, it's Jesus in a completely different solar system. He's He's not some big, strong, earthly hero. He's creator God. Would you listen to what John says in John 3, chapter 
uh, chapter 3, 28. He says, you yourselves bear witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. See, here it is. He's not the groom. He's the best man, you could say, but he's not the groom. The friend of the bridegroom, that's the best man, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. It's his voice he wants to hear. It's his voice he wants everyone else to hear. Therefore, the joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. He says that when his ministry's in decline and Jesus is starting to get more followers, Jesus starts baptizing him and his, John the Baptist followers come to John and there's, they're ticked because the rival's getting all the people now. And John says exactly how it's supposed to be. All the attention's being shifted from me to him. That's according to plan and that's as right as it can be. His disciples, his followers needed to get clued in to the understanding John the Baptist had that it's about Jesus. You want to know if a movement of God or a ministry or a church or a leader is spirit and word enabled? Jesus is exalted. Not the man, not the ministry, not the success, not the impressiveness. We come with a broken life. He says we put a broken life on the altar. Not an impressive life. It's amazing how you can't be a Christian until you get to the end of yourself. And, and you got to know that you've got nothing before God, but it, it doesn't take long before we try to be impressive to each other and even to God. Oh, isn't it so wonderful if you start to just let go of that and say, I'm a mess. <laughs> I got a broken life and empty hands and the altar. That's all I got. That's all I got. In a rebellious heart toward the king of kings, I've committed treason. It's all I got. And I can say that without any hesitation because we're all in that together. Every one of us. He is supreme. Listen to what Colossians says. Listen to this. Would, would you just flip over to Colossians chapter 1? Listen. Listen to what Jesus says. Listen to this. Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead and in everything that he might pre be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is everything we'll ever need. He is the greatest Far above all other imaginable great things, he is the greatest. He's supreme. And this great Savior is a judge. He's a judge. Listen to this description. He's just picking up where he left off last week when Randy helped us understand his previous words here. Listen to how he describes the Messiah, Jesus he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
This image of God's wrath, God's purifying wrath, his judgment, his justice, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn and the chaff he'll burn with unquenchable fire. This fire never goes out. It's eternal. It's everlasting because the God we've offended is eternal and everlasting. And look, he's just picking up where he left off. I mean, he's saying hard things here. Look at verse 7. He says to the crowds out who came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. What? Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See, this fire imagery is a very important image for us to understand. It points back to the character of God and the action of God in bringing judgment. And Jesus comes as a savior, but he comes as a judge as well. Jesus is a judge. And I want you to notice something. What John has been preaching is called what? In verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So this, in other exhortations, is considered good news. There are some cliches that I have used and Christians use we need to stop using. And I'm convinced one of them is we got to tell people the bad news before you tell them the good news. Then the bad news is God's wrath and his judgment and his justice. I think we should stop using that because the Bible sees that as all good news. Is it not good news that God hates and judges sin? Is it not good news that God hates and judges evil? So much so that he'll make it all right one day? even including the judgment of the wicked who never turned to him? Isn't that good news? Let's not call that bad news. It's all good. I love the justice of God, don't you? I love the wrath of God. It's amazing how seldom we thank God for his wrath, for his justice, for his holiness, which has to include those other things as well. We love this about God, don't we? Maybe we haven't suffered injustice enough or, or enough evil in this world to want God desperately to do something about it. Could you live in a world where there's no justice? Where there's no vehement opposition and dealing with sin and evil? Even when that sin and evil is in my own heart because we realized in point one that the judge is a savior. And the judge better be a savior. What's that line we were just singing in that song, Justin, let us in? What's that line? It's, oh, I wrote it down. I wrote it down. Oh, here it is. He's our judge and defender. Christ died and rose again. Forgiveness is in you. He's our judge and our savior. It's got to be both. He can't be our savior if he's not the same person who judges us. And he's both. It's wonderful news. It's all good news. Let's, not, let's stop calling it bad news. It's all good. And it's not good because it's nice. It's not good because it makes you feel good. Who said that defines good? It's not good because the culture applauds you for believing and preaching it either, for sure. The wrath of God and the exclusivity of Christ for salvation are not popular things. 
but they're true, which makes them good. And they point us to the only solution to these hard truths that's out there. Listen to Kevin DeYoung in a sermon he preached on a very difficult passage. That's a warning passage. Listen to what he says. Sometimes in an effort to be gospel-centered, we shy away from the warnings in Scripture. I understand the impulse. We know that many tender souls need to hear how much God loves them. We need to hear about our new identity in Christ. We need to know God is for us and not against us. But there are also hard hearts in the church who need to know that the way they're living right now and the stuff they're into right now is why the wrath of God is coming. Some people need to be shaken from their lethargy and realize that the wrath of God will be poured out on all the earth for the things they consider light and trivial offenses. Some people need the literal hell scared out of them. But you say, shouldn't I be emphasizing God's grace? Isn't it all about grace? Shouldn't our preaching and counseling be all about grace? And of course it should be. But what makes us think that the warning of God's wrath is not grace to us? We are not giving to our friends or to ourselves or to our people all the grace that God has for us if we do not make known that the wrath of God is coming. God is nothing but grace to his children, but this grace can come to us in brighter and darker hues. Are you grateful? Do you worship God because of his wrath, because of the fire that purifies because of his wrath? Psalm 711 says, God is angry with the wicked every day and judges. Isn't that great? Isn't that great news? Are you embarrassed by those things the Bible says? Isn't it wonderful to know that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and their unrighteousness? Isn't it good to know there's a judge? Isn't it good to know that Jesus didn't just come as a humble carpenter and say, consider the lilies, but he's coming again and his eyes will be like a flame of fire and on his head will be a diadem with the names written that no one knows but himself. He'll be clothed in a robe dipped with blood and the name by which he will be called is the word of God and the armies of heaven will be arrayed in fine linen with white and pure and will be following him on a white horse and from his mouth will come a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robes and on his thigh he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Isn't that good news? That's really good news. It's terrifyingly good news. We tend not to think of it that way. We're embarrassed of this. We, we, we want to just neglect it. Do you know a major denomination in the United States wanting to include town, uh, Stuart Town in song in Christ alone in their hymnal, but they asked the author if they could change one of the lines. Here's the line they didn't want in their hymnals. Till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They asked Stuart Town and if they could replace that with this line, till on that cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. 
Now, the love of God was magnified on the cross. But what's happening on the cross is the wrath of God is being satisfied, which is why his love is magnified. What does grace even mean? What does mercy even mean? What does patience even mean if God doesn't deeply hate and judge sin? It's really good news, and I'm thankful the authors wouldn't do it, and it ended up not being in their hymnals. And my message this morning right now is John's message, repent. I'm sure some of you hate what you're hearing. (laughs) Even though you kind of should have known what you were getting into if you know anything about our church. But don't reject this because it feels so difficult. Repent. Don't despise the simplicity of the gospel. It means repenting. It, it, just like John says, repent. Turn from yourself and your sin and your uh, filthy rags of so-called self-righteousness and turn to Jesus' perfect righteousness and perfect sacrifice and put saving faith in him. That's the basis of the gospel, trusting Jesus. Turn from sin to him because you know what happens. He gets what he doesn't deserve, so we get what we don't deserve. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So recognize your need for forgiveness and then repent and receive it from Jesus. Unlike Herod. Did you hear what we were told happened to Herod? John the Baptist calls him out for his immorality. And he was an immoral man. It wasn't as bad as his father. But he was horrible. And John called him out for his sexual immorality. So instead of listening... And receiving and repenting and receiving forgiveness, he throws John in prison as if he can get rid of his problem that way. He throws John in prison, and and that's not going to solve his problem. And don't be Herod this morning. Whether you're not wanting to repent for the first time or you don't want to repent of something you're harboring even as a believer right now, repentance is an incredibly life-giving, liberating reality. It's what we need to find forgiveness. And we've got to believe that. Don't reject, repent. Jesus is the judge and the Savior, and he redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's who he is for us. So repent and believe in Jesus, your righteous judge and loving Savior. That is awesome news. Your judge is your savior, and he has to be. Look, please, you've got to know John is not talking to those pagans out there in this passage, and neither am I. Uh, He's talking to religious people. He's talking to moral people. He's he's talking to people who, who... even come for repentance to get that religious thing done. And, and he's saying, you brood of viper, you're missing the whole point. He's not preaching to pagans here. He's not preaching to Herod, even though he did in another context, obviously. Gets his head cut off for it. He's preaching to nice religious moral people. And, and that's who most of us probably are and consider ourselves to be. And we've got to know that re- true repentance and true belief in Jesus is the only answer. It's, the only, it's not moral living. It's not religious living. It's a, a, a death to selfism and a yes to Jesus, the supreme Savior and judge. 
And this very naturally leads to point four. Jesus is the uniter and the divider. He unites and he divides. And he actually unites with an including division. That's part of the way he unites. What do I mean by that? Well, John uses this winnowing image, right? Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff will burn, he'll burn with unquenchable fire. So he's mixing metaphors very intentionally here between, between winnowing wheat and getting the chaff out and fire that ends up consuming the chaff. If you wonder what a winnowing fork is, it, this is a, an image of a winnowing fork. This is what they looked like in the first century. It was this fork you used to throw wheat up in the air, and I was talking to Rick Floyd about it, and he, was, he watched in Peru people doing this all the time. He said, it's so cool to watch, and it really works. Chaff is a lot lighter than wheat. Here's an image of someone actually, a couple people actually doing that. They throw it up in the air, and the wind drives the chaff away, and the wheat, heavier wheat, drops to the threshing floor and you you preserve what's edible and you get rid of what's useless and there it is and and this is actually a threshing floor when the work is done there's the wheat that's left what's usable and actually the image doesn't end here in this passage because he doesn't just leave uh, leave us with with usable wheat on the floor he collects the wheat and brings it home into the barn And the chaff that blows away is burned in unquenchable fire, this image of eternal judgment and punishment. And and there's a threshing floor that's been cleared. This is the image we're left with. He's brought the usable wheat into the barn, and he's burned the chaff that's blown away. And this picture, this image of sifting judgment, listen, listen, please, has a final and future aspect to it. And it's also got a present and ongoing aspect to it. What do I mean by that? This is pointing to the final judgment. But it's also pointing to the judgment that God's working out every day. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. See, that'll incur judgment. Yes, on the day of judgment, but today... There's a further hardening, and sometimes the preaching of the gospel that doesn't save ends up being part of God's just judgment on someone. Today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Please realize that today is the day of salvation. So as I was saying, repent and believe. Jesus is a divider of people. You know, we live in a very gray time, blurry, ambiguous. Nothing's clear. Everything's both and. And then the Bible comes in with images like, well, you got wheat and you got chaff. And the wheat's useful and it's brought in the barn and the chaff, it blows away. Well, no, it's not that simple, is it? The Bible's always coming with this very clear, simple perspective into our very gray and ambiguous and blurry culture. And there's wheat and there's chaff. And they're both sitting in the chairs at churches, sometimes for decades not even knowing their chaff. And, and this passage this morning is forcing us to think through this in a fresh and powerful way. Jesus is the one, as Simeon said in chapter 2, who will cause the rising and falling of many. He'll be the one upon whom some stand as their firm foundation, and that firm foundation will crush others. That's who he is. And so there's division. That's what it says in John 7. There was division among the people over him. 
Jesus is a divider, and he unifies in the process. Acts 14 says, The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and others with the apostles, and the apostles continued to preach the gospel. Do you realize how unsuccessful John's ministry was? He's not going to go on some tour teaching people how to do ministry with a DVD series. He's got his head cut off for preaching the truth. Well, there's no doubt it was love, it was spirit and word enabled. But he got his head cut off. He's losing people to the Messiah. His ministry from a worldly perspective was completely unsuccessful. But from God's perspective, because of his faithfulness and his spirit-enabled, word-based truth-telling, God was very pleased with it. And it accomplished exactly what it was intended to accomplish. You know, we all want unity. Unity is a wonderful thing. But you don't get Christian unity without truth and without division. We've just got to realize this. You know, maybe my grandparents' generation erred on the side of truth over unity. But we've completely swung in the pendulum in the other direction. And we define truth without a whiff. Uh, we define unity and love without a whiff of truth. It's not loving if it's not grounded in God's word. It's not kind. It's not... Uh, compassionate if it's not grounded in the word of God. John called Herod out for the way he was living his life that was dishonoring to God. And he knew it. And he told him. And he killed him for it. God's people will be persecuted. And, and suffering comes through this. L listen to this. I found this excellent essay by Will, William Farley, a retired pastor. And he talks about Jesus, the gospel, Jesus as dividing people and that being a good thing, a hard thing, but a good thing. Listen, faithful gospel ministry means preaching the whole counsel of God. Grace, mercy, and love seldom cause division. Wrath, judgment, and repentance do. The gospel's inherently divisive. It affects both unbelievers and saints. Believers respond with joy. Others respond with anger, condescension, disgust, and apathy. Sometimes unbelieving visitors will walk out in the middle of your Sunday sermon. It's happened to me, for sure. Sometimes professing Christians will too. Why? Because the gospel commands us to humble ourselves and renounce dependence on our good works. It commands us to submit to God's sovereign grace. The message is humbling, and pride doesn't like to be humbled. The gospel winnows the church by offending people. After all, the God behind the gospel is not what unbelief expects. He's the narrow gate who saves only the obedient and threatens unbelief with weeping and gnashing of teeth and eternal fire. Paul was clear on the issue. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. Farley concludes this way, the long-term presence of lingering unbelief muddies the waters. So when you've got lingering unbelief unchecked in the church, it muddies the waters. But one benefit of preaching the gospel is that it motivates the departure of unbelievers and irresistibly attracts true believers. 
The process is painful and sad, but necessary. After all, a congregation with a high number of unbelievers will often be divided, joyless, contentious, lukewarm, and uncommitted. This is not saying, let's get this nice little tidy club of only Christians. It's the opposite, actually. Once this happens, the fruit will come. A unified church full of believers who are growing in the Lord will be more evangelistic, more attractive to the watching world, and more generous financially and more welcoming to unbelievers and visitors. One author puts it this way, the exclusivity that fuels a blazing hot community of believers can do far more gospel work than watering down the breadth and depth of commitment. In order to feel inclusive, the main obstacle is the fear of man. We fear what people will think about us after they hear what kind of things we believe and what the Bible actually teaches. A second obstacle is the pain of separation. Simply put, it hurts. When people we love who do not know the Lord leave, it hurts. To keep them around, the world, our flesh, and the devil will tempt us to compromise critical truths. But for the long-term health of our church, we must let the gospel do its winnowing work. We must persevere in the faith and embrace rejection for the lasting joy of greater unity. Jesus winnowed, Paul winnowed, the apostles winnowed. For 2,000 years, pastors have seen how the gospel faithfully preached separates the wheat from the chaff. This process is painful, but those who press on in faithfulness, to them, God promises a rich reward. Never forget that it's the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops and that those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Truth and love, grace and justice must be preached and will be persecuted. I haven't experienced anything I would even call persecution yet. I think it's coming, though. Timothy is told by Paul, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Hebrews describes these martyrs and people who suffered for their faith profoundly. And then he concludes this way. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Just know that if you're a true disciple... It's going to be hard. There's going to be persecution, and we need to get more and more used to that. We've been insulated from it in this culture, at least, in so many ways. It'll be hard, but it will be worth it. God promises that, and he is faithful to always keep his promises. If if you want to talk to somebody about this gospel we've been preaching, if, if you want to argue with someone about it, if you want to... Pray with someone about this. There will be people up here willing to pray with you. I'll be here. would love to pray with you. My wife and I will be here, and we would love to talk to you and pray with you more. Let's pray now. Father, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the joy of being adopted and forgiven and declared righteous in Christ. Lord, thank you for your wrath. We're grateful for your jealous anger and judgment of sin. Lord, we don't say this with a shallow glee, but we say it with gratitude. We say it with worship. Lord, we're grateful you're exactly who you are, with nothing altered by contemporary sensibilities or our intuitions. 
You're the judge. Lord, we don't like, I don't like being told what to do or whether I'm reconciled to you or not. But thank you that you tell us that in Christ there is reconciliation. There is forgiveness. There is freedom, abundant and eternal life. And I pray, Lord, that no one would leave here today without knowing, resting in, and enjoying that abundant and eternal life through faith in Christ. And we pray these things in his saving, sovereign, and matchless name. Amen.